Thank you to Commissioner Pham for providing those remarks. And thinking about how to best regulate in this space, she's proposed a pilot program for the CFTC, and we've been talking a lot about specifics today. Um, this next panel, regulating open source financial technology, is going to take a step back from some of those specifics and talk about the bigger picture. How should new financial technologies that are designed to be open source and decentralized be regulated? That's a big question, and I want to give them plenty of time to delve deeply. So I'm excited to hand off the mic to our moderator, Nikki Kristoff, the founder and CEO of Kristoff & Co., and the host of the podcast, Teched Up. Nikki? Thanks, Ms. Schoenberg. So a few notes before we get started. This is the last panel of the day. It's over an hour long. There are five attorneys on this stage. <laughs> so it's my job to keep it kind of moving and activated. We will try to do big picture, but we're obviously going to get into the weeds. Um, in addition to the in-person audience, I believe we have a few hundred people watching online. So I just wanted to let everyone know when we sort of wrap up the moderated conversation, I'll be opening it up to questions in person. But also, if you are watching virtually, you can submit a question via Facebook YouTube, this is the Cato Institute's uh, accounts, also their website, and I know y'all are on Twitter still, so um, you can also submit a question on Twitter with the hashtag CatoEcon. So uh, we'll wrap up, we'll do that, and then we'll be on our way. Um, I want to start by introducing our panelists one at a time, and then we'll go to some opening statements from them. To my left is Jess Jonas. She's the Chief Legal Officer of the Bitcoin Legal Defense Fund. She's focused on litigation that essentially is protecting open source developers, so we'll dig into that, especially what's happening in the UK. She previously worked at Gemini Trust and the legal team at American Express and started her career as a litigator in New York. Thanks for coming down. Thanks. Next is Brad Newman. He leads the blockchain practice at Baker McKinsey. He's also the co-chair of the American Bar Association Blockchain and AI Subcommittee. He specializes in DeFi, smart contracts, cryptocurrency, I don't know if we're still saying Web3, Web3. Um, so thank you for joining. Next up is Jack Soloway, veteran of the Cato Institute. I think you've been here 10 years. He's a policy analyst, uh, part of the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, and recently wrote a really interesting piece about AI already giving us financial advice. So we'll dig into that. And finally, we have Yasha Yadav. She's a member of the Vanderbilt Law Faculty, expert in fintech and international regulations, market structure, Previously at the World Bank, you've lived and practiced law in London and in Paris. You advise India, NASDAQ. So we'll dig in especially on her thoughts on international regulation. So thank you all for coming. We'll start with just some opening statements. I think we should just go right down the line. And I'd ask you to talk about what you're most working on, what you're focused on right now, kind of bottom line up front, what you'd like the audience to take away, and um, and what you most want to discuss today. So Jess, let's start with you. Sure. So uh, I'm Jess Jonas. I'm the CLO of the Bitcoin Legal Defense Fund, which is a nonprofit that was established a couple of years ago to support Bitcoin developers specifically who are facing uh, lawsuits for the work that they do on the Bitcoin Core software protocol. Um, we have a couple of lawsuits currently pending in the UK. And um, I can't spend a ton of time giving you all the background or procedural history, um, but if you are interested, I encourage you to visit our website. It's bitcoindefense.org, um, and you can learn about the cases and what we're fighting. But 
A snapshot is the issues that we're grappling with in the UK are an existential threat to the future of open source software. And for anybody who's not particularly familiar with the breadth and the scope of what open source software is and how it affects our day-to-day -day lives, I'll just mention that 97% of the world's software runs on open source. Android operating system, which is the most popular smartphone operating system in the world, is open source. If you open up the licenses in your iPhone, you will see that even Apple uses quite a lot of open source technology as part of their proprietary library. NASA uses open source technology. Uh, Facebook's data center, open source. PlayStation 4 uses open source technology. Uh, SpaceX uses open source technology. So open source technology, whether in the financial sector or more broadly in our day-to-day -day lives is critical. And the people who work on open source technology are developers and they do it for free. They volunteer their time to work on technology in a particular space or for a particular product that they're interested in, passionate about, believe in, what have you. And the developers that I help defend who are facing lawsuits in the UK are a group of open source developers who work on the Bitcoin core software. And the work that they do keeps the software safe and secure and running. And without them, there will be no more Bitcoin. And without people like them who continue to volunteer their time to work on something for free, we will not have a future of open source financial products that the world can benefit from. So that's probably longer than what you wanted me to no, say. No, it was perfect. But <laughs> what I want all of you to do is put yourself in the shoes of the open source developers. How would you feel if you were sued by a stranger in another part of the world claiming that you owe them a duty of care because they may or may not have been injured by a product that runs on a technology that you helped code? What if the license under which your software was released, for example, the MIT license, which is an open source license under which Bitcoin was released originally in 2009, was not protective of the work that you did and didn't limit your liability. Would you continue to volunteer your time to work on technology to offer to the public for free? Or would you perhaps maybe go get a job at Microsoft and be protected by their corporate shield? be fine to work at Microsoft, but yes, I think that was a leading question. Thank you, Jess. <laughs> but we'll dig into it more, and I want to talk about how the case law you're working on can impact us here in the U.S. and globally. So yep. we'll dig into it. Brad, you're up next. I'm Brad Newman, and first I'd like to thank Cato for having me. This has been a great program so far, and for those of you hanging in there till the end, thank you. This is going to be a good panel, as you've already, we've already started out with a lot of passion, and it is a great time to be talking about regulating uh, DeFi. Uh, I represent a lot of the DeFi players, and I do a lot of speaking and writing in this space, and I do a lot of teaching of these concepts to U.S. judges. And let me tell you two things. One, they don't understand this technology, and t by and large. And two, the first line of regulation is happening before our eyes in the United States courts. And we've heard from earlier panels how uh, there is a 
concerted effort to not do business in the United States in certain sectors because you don't want to meet our industry's favorite person, Gary Gensler, and his staff of minions who are out doing what they're doing to this industry for good reason. You don't want to meet them, so you don't do business here. But a lot of DeFi comes with a promise of making people's lives better in underbanked communities. There's a lot of promise for places that don't have access to banks and to make things quicker, easier, and better. There's some downside to the industry as well, but we need to do a better job educating not just the senators and the congresswomen and congressmen, putting aside the regulators and enforcers who are gonna do what they're gonna do. We need to make sure judges and juries, which is why I just love my co-panelist opening statement to all of you, our jurors today, we need to make sure you, you all understand what DeFi is and what DeFi isn't because jurors and judges are going to be making the first decisions on the front lines here. And what a great time. We just had the Uniswap case come out six days ago from the Southern District of New York, and we're not going to get all legally on you, but we can certainly delve into what that means. And we just had the proposal of the CAN-C bipartisan proposed bill come out. Um, these are important uh, events in, in regulating DeFi, and we had our good, good friend, friend of the community, Chairman Gensler, talk about uh, his view on DeFi in an April statement, and he said, I'm going to come get the DeFi exchanges the same as I'm going to come get Coinbase. So he's in the game, and, and that's very important, too. So these are some of the issues we'll be talking about today. Facetious, Gary Gensler. We could start a drinking game on how many times people say Gary Gensler. But yes, important. And the stopgap is, is absolutely going to be lawsuits. So we'll definitely dig into that more. Jack. Thank you so much, Nikki. And thank you to my co-panelists. I've really been looking forward to this panel uh, for weeks now. Um, what I'm focused on right now is whether U.S. regulators will stop what can be an autonomous finance revolution before it ever gets off the ground. And we're seeing, uh, we're in the early innings of potential regulatory backlash against open source technology here in the US. Um, we see this pointedly in the case of Tornado Cash, where the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control uh, designated as a sanctioned entity the software, the protocol underlying Tornado Cash, making it illegal for folks not only who potentially would use the software for illicit purposes to transact over that protocol, but also for folks who had completely legal, honest uh, purposes with using Tornado Cash. Uh, the use of that protocol was criminalized for them as well. Why does this matter? Open source technology is, has the potential to undergird the autonomous finance revolution. We've seen this already in the case of cryptocurrencies, in the case of decentralized finance, and we're beginning to see this in the case of artificial intelligence. Um, open source undergirds a lot of crypto protocols, and I think it may come as a surprise to folks who are used to hearing that training AI models is such a compute and data and resource-intensive process that a lot of AI models that are very capable and competent are actually open source and can be run on consumer-grade devices. Now, disintermediation from the perspective of autonomous finance is a feature, not a bug. 
But regulators whose operating system of regulation uh, traditionally relies on intermediaries to be the proxy regulators of financial products and services view disintermediation as a bug and not a feature. And I think that thinking is extremely problematic because it could lead to losing out on a lot of the benefits of open source financial technology that I think we'll be talking about throughout the course of this panel. And I urge regulators to, before uh, indulging in a backlash against open source financial technology, to really steel man the benefits of open source that could be lost here. Thank you. I'm certain that we have people who work at Treasury in the audience, so. Uh, thank you for noting their, their OS, and we'll dig into this more. I'm really curious about Tornado Cash because I'll probably play devil's advocate and talk about North Korea, um, so you can defend that. You have a few minutes till we get to that, um, but I think it's an important discussion to your point. It has broader implications, and one thing we'll try to do on this panel is just go back to fintech. So. Obviously, it's summer 2023. We're, of course, talking AI on any tech panel, but that you mentioned specifically an AI financial revolution, I think is really important and how that's going to impact consumers and also liberate consumers, which I think we, we're at the Cato Institute, so we're for, and we're for that, right, for liberating ourselves from intermediaries. Finally, we'll get to Yesha. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Nikki. And thank you so very much to uh, Jennifer, uh, to the Cato Institute. Uh, thank you so much to the incredible organizers, the AV staff, and everyone that's put this truly impactful day together. Um, it's been such a pleasure. Um, and I'm just amazed by how much hard work and dedication and care um, it takes to make this day feel so much more like Beyonce rather than Burning Man. Um, so, you know, it really is just such a pleasure to, to be here and thank you so much for the invite. Um, so what I've been working on echoing some of, the, some of the comments that my panelists have made is really thinking about how traditional concepts in financial regulation are sitting alongside um, decentralized Finance. So, you know, as my co-panelists have sort of talked about, decentralized finance is here, um, and it's touching mainstream finance in some very real ways. In particular, some really popular decentralized applications, for example, Uniswap, um, thinking about, you know, Aave, lending protocols like Aave, um, Compound, and others, you know, they really run on the back of open source technology. They have based infrastructure on open source technology. And these are, you know, applications that decide centralized finance world today, today um, at a down and at a sort of a downbeat part of the market has approximately $43 billion worth of total value locked at present. So this is not insignificant. Um, but these decentralized financial applications are approximating traditional financial functions like lending, exchange, deposit, and so forth. And yet they, uh, you know, traditional financial regulation really has no idea what to do about them. And there's a very good reason for that. Traditional financial regulation regulation sits very uneasily with open source. Traditional financial regulation is designed precisely to keep people out. Traditional financial regulation is set up to create barriers to entry in order to create, for example, eligibility standards for financial participation, compliance standards for just, you know, how to relate to consumers, investors, and others, thinking about interconnection between participants in the marketplace, as well as also international standards that are implemented and likely only to be adapted by a certain category of institution that has the ability to comply. 
So thinking about financial infrastructure in the traditional marketplace as it is really needs a lot of resources, needs a lot of legs, needs a lot of control to make sure that only certain people are authorized and eligible to take part and to be able to sort of um, change and impact the infrastructure that um, financial systems run on. That is obviously not the case here in the case of DeFi. So traditional concepts like how you know, eligibility criteria should be thought about, thinking about what kind of obligations should be uh, put forward in the context of, um, you know, compliance for consumers, as well as thinking about just how to deal with the interconnection that is visible in parts of the decentralized financial space. You know, these are things that regulators are having a really hard time dealing with. But these are questions that are super you know, super important. As Jessica pointed out, this goes to the heart of what DeFi is doing. Who is going to get sued, right? Who is liable? To the extent that, you know, standards are being built, to the extent that we're thinking about bringing new pieces of legislation to the fore, other panelists have talked about, you know, bills that are coming um, into, the, into, the, into the mix today. The question of who is liable, who has, the, who has the obligations to create disclosure, to create, you know, standards for safety and soundness, cyber risk, and so forth, that is a key question. Who is able to be sued here? Who is on the hook? In addition, you know, what is the ability of our regulators to be able to, 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 to intervene um, within the decentralized financial space to be able to potentially control instances of contagion? This space is designed to operate in a way that is automated, essentially regulator-free. So how do traditional uh, concepts of sort of stepping in and dealing with contagion, how can they map on and fit to this? So, you know, these are some, you know, questions that are coming up. As, you know, Brad mentioned, as Jack mentioned, um, the these questions are already being litigated in the courts. The Uniswap case was mentioned. Tornado Cash was mentioned. So, you know, the industry is far ahead. These controversies are happening, and yet regulation is very far behind. And the reason is very clear. Traditional financial regulation is not tooled up to and not conceptualized to handle the key, you know, the key aspects of decentralized finance that sort of look to um, that look to open source, look to disintermediation that sits, you know, very uneasily alongside our traditional financial tools that we have at our disposal. Thank you. And I know you've written a lot about how fintech exacerbates sort of their existing regulations. So we'll definitely dig more into that. And I'm glad you mentioned contagion because I do think we have to, you know, be realistic about some of the you know, when you're completely automated, obviously that's a risk, so I want to dig in more. So what I'm going to do now is ask a question sort of directed at each of you, but then if anyone else wants to jump in or has thoughts, let's keep it a dialogue because I know a stand and deliver is not as interesting. So definitely ask each other questions too. Uh, but Jess, let's start with you. So maybe we can talk a little bit about the specifics you're seeing in the UK. I know that you did make an impassioned defense of open source, and I think you did a really nice job of connecting it to things consumers use beyond Bitcoin. I own Bitcoin, but I don't think most Americans do. And I think it's a good way to connect what's happening in this industry with what people already know, understand, and care about. So can you dig a little more into, without getting too much into the actual legal arguments necessarily, although you can, what are you seeing in that case? And how is that case law going to impact the case law here? That's an excellent question. So um, I can't really answer that without giving you a little bit of procedural background. You can do it. Do here. it. We're here. <laughs> As you said, we have a lot of lawyers on this stage. We just can't help ourselves. But 
Um, one of the cases, both of the cases that we're fighting in the UK, uh, one of them is by the name of Tulip Trading uh, Limited. A lot of people may have heard about it. It has gotten uh, quite a lot of press because of the subject that is being litigated over there and the potential impact of it. But the defendants in that case are mostly not UK citizens. They're mostly Americans or citizens of EU countries. And they have been pulled into court in the United Kingdom to answer for injuries uh, UK resident allegedly suffered. So what's really interesting is that this is not isolated within borders. We're not talking about software developers who live and work in London and are being sued in London for an injury, alleged injury to somebody in London. No, we are talking about software developers who live and work all over the world, specifically not in the United Kingdom, being pulled into court in the United Kingdom to, again, answer for alleged injuries that somebody suffered there. And that means that you cannot think about any particular holding that may be rendered there as a holding that will only be scoop, uh, sorry, scoped to the United Kingdom. It could be used to continue to exert jurisdiction over somebody who is outside those borders, exactly as ha how it has been used um, in these cases. And the test for subject matter and personal jurisdiction in the United Kingdom is very different from the test in the United States. Anyone who's a lawyer and went through first year of law school will understand what that test is, um, and I'm not going to spend any time on that. But the fact that people can be pulled into court outside of their home jurisdiction to answer for crimes that they let wrongs that they allegedly committed in another jurisdiction is pretty insane. So when you think about what that impact could be of a holding rendered there and whether any other court in any jurisdiction would, con would consider extending that, it's really hard to say. There is no precedent that exists, legal precedent, in case law, anywhere in the world that ex exists for the question that is being asked in the United Kingdom right now. And that question is whether Open source software developers, specifically Bitcoin developers in this case, should be considered an ad hoc group of fiduciary that should owe fiduciary duties to people who use the software that they created. And for anybody who's not very familiar with fiduciary duties, fiduciary, a fiduciary relationship is a special relationship of trust. It's a single-minded duty of loyalty. It is what an attorney owes to their client. It is what a doctor owes to their patient. It's what a guardian owes to their ward. These are specific classes of relationships where the parties are known to each other. It is not entered into blindly. It is not entered into without knowing who your counterpart is. The question of whether somebody who's writing software in Texas could be dragged into court by a complete stranger to them for potential fiduciary responsibilities is not a question that has been answered anywhere. Why? Because it doesn't make any sense in the existing canon of fiduciary duty law. So that's a very long way of saying that even if the UK court were to come to that conclusion, and I do not think they will, mm -hmm. but even if they were to find that, I do not think a US court, for example, would extend such a holding. There are hundreds of years of case law on fiduciary duties, what they are, how they work, how they are created, how those relationships are created. There is no reason, in fact or in the law, to extend the borders of those relationships, even for new technology. And I think that's sort of one of the problems with this. This is, this is what Brad was saying. Part of what the job, of what our job is to do, is to educate the judge and the juries. 
Ask the question because you want to know the answer. But don't come to this conclusion because you do not understand what the question is. And you do not understand what the facts are. And that's one of the problems that we have. This is a new technology. It's complicated. It is hard for people to understand. Most people who own Bitcoin don't really know how it works. Most people who don't own Bitcoin, like the judges, for example, likely are not Bitcoin holders, definitely don't know how it works. So trying to get somebody to understand how this technology works, what the developers do, what they're able to do, what they're unable to do, why any of this matters, what these relationships are, that's a big task. But I do think it is one that we can do. I do think these are questions we can answer. And I do think it is ultimately something that people will understand. So I have a follow-up question for you. I had a British boss for almost a decade, and she, one of her favorite expressions was, I need a throat to choke. <laughs> it was, she had a lot of expressions, actually, but that was one of them. And I, I wonder if, just back out of the merits of the legal argument, which is obviously what you do for a living, so that's what you're focused on, which is, is there a fiduciary relationship? No. Is there a fiduciary duty? Almost certainly not in the United States. It's been a long time since I looked at standing. Uh, I'm, as I mentioned, I'm a podcaster. But anyway, I think that one question I have for you is, do you think it's a policy as a policy, this is why these cases are being brought, which is who else would you sue if there's a harm? So you're saying alleged harms, but if there was, who else would you go after for a harm in a situation like this? I mean, maybe that's a rhetorical question. There's not a good answer. But set aside the legal merits, which is a totally different, that's obviously what's needed in these cases. Do you think that's what is motivating the lawsuits? Well, no, I don't think that's what's motivating the lawsuits. I think what's motivating the lawsuits is personal animus, and I don't think that's anything we need to get into. Um, but to answer your specific question, um, I think that uh, there are people who could answer for these alleged harms, right? There is an existing body of tort law. What happens when somebody is injured? We spend a semester in law school learning about that in our first year as a fundamental question. What happens when somebody is injured criminally? What happens when somebody is injured civilly? There does not need to be a new area of law developed to answer what is a very simple question. Yes, love it. Move to torts. I like it. Okay, which kind of leads us, I definitely want to go to Brad to talk about juries because one of my, anybody who is in this industry who ever interacts with me hears me saying, like, no one understands what we're talking about. It's a major, it's our Achilles heel, I think. But I want to talk first to Jack because what you just said also applies to Tornado Cash, mm -hmm. right? So what you just said is... Um, you sort of have to, there are criminal laws. You were talking about OFAC. There's sanctions. Can you dig into more about what you started with, which is tornado cash and what specifically about that? I sort of understand I have some empathy, a lot of empathy for people who are trying to prevent sanctions evasion. And sometimes I think in the industry we say, no one's evading sanctions. And our vision for this is that you absolutely, if things go the way a lot of people want the tech to go and there's disintermediation, you could. So can you talk more about Tornado Cash and make the argument for why? I know you said already the greater repercussions, but dig a little more into that issue and your thoughts on it. Sure. So categorically, North Korean weapons proliferation is a problem. Ransomware is a problem. Hacking is a problem. Um, I've yet to meet the person who holds a brief for uh, sanctions evasion. Um, I think the question here, though, is who is properly in the dock for when North Korean-aligned or state-sponsored hackers commit crimes and, you, and use the proceeds of those crimes likely to commit other crimes? 
Uh, what's interesting in the case of Tornado Cash is actually um, putting aside the criminal indictments of some of the developers of Tornado Cash. The sanctions designation of Tornado Cash actually targeted the software itself. So it's actually a bit of a different posture from naming and blaming a party. It's actually naming and blaming a software protocol, effectively making it radioactive from a regulatory perspective. Um, I think that's bad precedent. I think we could actually look to the Uniswap case that Brad mentioned for a fitting analogy where the court was receptive to the idea that if, for example, the software of an autonomous vehicle um, was developed by uh, the developers of that software, if the autonomous vehicle was then used to rob a bank, would the software developers, would the software itself uh, be properly the subject of um, a criminal indictment, of a sanctions designation. In the tornado cash analogy, it would basically be saying autonomous vehicles are illegal because one of these was used to rob a bank. And I just think that type of precedent is unhelpful when we're looking at the potential benefits of a broad class of open source financial technology. And I think that brings it back to something, Jess, you said at the beginning, which is this is going to impact commercial products that people might be more familiar with. So the average American is not uh, using a mixer or anything else with their crypto, any of that, right? But autonomous vehicles are a perfect example. I used to work at Uber, so perfect example. You have LiDAR technology, right? You're not going to criminalize the use of that, especially I just found out it's on the new Apple the new Apple phone. So it's like they're using that technology. If you had made it radioactive, to your point, you can't apply it to other products, and that's absolutely the risk with this. And I, I want to come back and I want to talk about AI with you as well, but I think, I think that's a really good answer. And actually, when Jennifer and I met, we were at a dinner where someone was defending <laughs> using us for sanctions evasion. I was like, I never want to hear that again. <laughs> never say that outside of this. If, if I can just jump in on that yeah. a little bit, which is to say that, you know, this is coming back to the design of our AML and sanctions laws, right, which really do look for specific actors in order to hold them accountable. So, for example, traditionally, you know, banks are on the front line, so they're monitoring specific transactions. You're dealing with centralized exchanges in the crypto space that have been really brought to bear uh, following the invasion of Ukraine uh, to monitor um, and, and deal with sanctioned individuals. And sort of beyond that, you know, you've had a whole host of centralized actors that have been co-opted in this space. And that's a very normal paradigm for sanctions uh, in, in the case of implementing and enforcing sanctions. We just don't have a clue how to deal with DeFi in this context, right? Like, and I think that's the fundamental problem here, which is we're just not sure how to apply this kind of AML, you know, sanctions framework and to then, you know, deal with a otherwise decentralized application. I believe Tornado Cash is the first decentralized uh, mixer that has been held, um, uh, you know, that has, that has had action taken against it in this fashion. I think Blender is a centralized one that pre previous to that. Um, and so, you know, again, I think it's this, it's this real gap that we're facing today, which is the design of the law and what DeFi is providing. And we're just not getting to see any kind of handle that, that, that regulators have on it, because obviously looking beyond this, and courts will use this as a precedent potentially, what's the impact on the broader tech space, looking at autonomous vehicles, even things like Facebook and others, as Jessica was talking about, they rely so heavily on open source. Our law just doesn't have the answer, at least in the financial regulatory space. And it's an excellent point, right, that sanctions apply to individuals, and normally banks are the people who or the entities that are helping the governments refine those individuals, and it is a problem. Banks Although, are people, too. 
It's a little. You and I thought it was funny. Literally no one else. I thought it was great. I thought it was great too. Brad, let's talk juries. So I said this at the beginning, but I often say one of the reasons it's so tough in DC is we talk the vernacular that this industry uses is constantly evolving. I'll learn one word and then it's another word. The average voter doesn't understand it at all, which if they don't understand it, they don't care about it. So I think making the point to juries as to why they should care is important when you get down to the facts of the law. But you work with juries and judges. Tell us what you're seeing behind the scenes. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Because <laughs> just sitting here today, generally, and sitting on this panel, I'm going to get in the helicopter. I'm going up. I'm helicoptering Do it. up. Go up. Because usually I'm the dumbest person in the room. And usually the smarter people think I get it all, and normally I don't. So let's just talk first principles. We are here to talk about regulating open source technology, but what are we talking about? American liability suing in the UK. Who is liable? Why are we talking about that? Because this goes to money. Well, whose money? My money. But my money's in a bank, and when the bank messes up, I'm going to demand to talk to the manager. I want to talk to that manager, and I want the problem fixed. And this is some of what we're talking about. Just for dummies like me, DeFi is a direct peer-to-peer decentralized transaction using open source technology developed by Jess's clients who are being woefully and wrongfully persecuted worse than in a biblical sense. Um, and that's why you should find for Jess's clients and let them go free of the UK. I'm sorry. Um, okay, so DeFi is a new model. And we've heard a little bit about the problems that creates. But the problems are fundamentally the same if we go to first principles. There are regulators in DC, in the various states, who want to be seen as fighting for my dearly departed grandmother. She'd be about 180 if she were alive. But my dearly departed grandmother living in an imaginary city in Iowa, having her coffee at the, at the cafe, who was defrauded by a rug pull, okay? <laughs> a rug pull is a big no-no word in our industry. It's where really bad people use open open source software to sell you a token that has no value, that they pump up, you buy it. My grandma buys it, sipping her coffee at the cafe in Iowa, and she puts in her $10, and 10 minutes later, it's worth 10 cents, and the people who use the open source software to sell you this run away with billions of dollars to the Bahamas, and they buy penthouses and cars. Oh, that's a different case, sorry. Okay, so... This is about a new model for transacting finance without the proverbial man, decentralized. Is it fully decentralized? That's the first question. Who are we going to blame? And I would posit that the regulators and our good friends at the SEC are taking an overly simplistic binary approach that an entire industry is bad, that mixers like Tornado Cash are empowering horrible actors in North Korea who do ransomware attacks to 
jumble their dirty Bitcoins that they got for payoffs and ransomware, throw it in there and come out with clean Bitcoin and do some more bad stuff. All financial industry has its seamy dark side. And when I talk to judges, especially my friends on the bench in New York who are struggling to understand this as these cases come before them, Hey, what's different about this? This is standard Wall Street fraud. Rug pulls on crypto are no different than what the Raiders have been doing on Wall Street for years. It's all the same. Don't give me your fancy schmancy crypto DeFi protocol, layer three, blah, blah, blah. It's just fraud. Well, yes, there is some fraud involved in the industry. There always has been a panelist on an earlier panel made that point, I thought, well. What we need to understand is we need to accept the rest of the world is adopting this technology. The future of financial transactions are going to be DeFi. We must educate as to the good use cases, the reasons why the rest of the world is adopting this, why it's going to displace what we've known as traditional banking, and then recognize something very important, which I don't hear a lot of people talking about. We are challenging in this industry the sovereign who controls monetary policy and the banks who control our money traditionally. And when you swat a stick at that, intentionally or unintentionally, you want to change the paradigm. You want to get rid of the banks to a large extent. You want to take monetary policy away from the Fed and away from central banking. You're poking a stick at some pretty formidable adversaries, even if you don't have any malintent at all. So regulators are going to come along, and they're going to regulate. First, they're going to invite a lot of smart people. I never get invited to roundtables at fancy resorts where they sit around and talk about the problem. Then they go testify in Congress, and then usually something bad happens, and you get terrible legislation. What our job should be, who understand or participate in the ecosystem is to demystify, put this in simple terms, educate judges and juries who are the first-line regulators, whether we like it or not. Stop talking like we're smart, you're dumb. And then get around regulators and start telling them, not this is what you should do, but rather this is the industry. These are the use cases that are good Let's protect the good use cases from the bad actors. Jess made a point, and, you know, I'm split. I have a split personality. I don't believe in regulation, and a lot of times I look for existing laws that can cover bad, you know, use cases in a new industry. And I'm not for regulation generally, except in the AI sphere, but that's a different panel for a different day. I do think regulation is going to come out. It's already started in this industry. And we need to make sure the focus is on protecting the good use cases of DeFi. Because I do think for rug pulls and ordinary fraud and AML KYC evasion and sanction evasion, the government is on top of it. They have the resources, and other panelists on a previous panel talked about the technological resources to trace a lot of this ransomware payoff, going to North Korea, going to a Tumblr, coming out clean, and catching it in the, in the channel. What I also think we should be encouraging regulators to do, rather than 
the Coinbase lawsuit that says, Coinbase, you're bad, although we approved your IPO. However, I guess we had a change of, of plans. And all these coins listed are all bad protocols and all bad, and there's 80 of them, and just get rid of the whole. No, 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 no. What our regulators should be doing is taking individual cases of bad acts and using the resources of the best government in the world, the United States government, and for those watching around the world, that's my bias, using the United States government's power to stamp out the bad actors, not the bad industry, because DeFi as an industry isn't bad. Blockchain as an industry isn't bad. It actually is better for a lot of reasons that folks on these call uh, on today understand. So we're letting the discourse, the regulatory impetus, and the judges be guided by two things, and a lack of understanding and fringe bad cases. And getting back to your car analysis, that is like saying we're going to get rid of all autonomous vehicles because one drove into a wall or hurt somebody. We're going to get rid of all solar because my panels in my house blew up and there was a fire. That's all wrong. Now, there are some vexing issues, and frankly, I don't have the answer for them. For example, if DAOs continue to pro proliferate, and you have a consortium of 10,000 anonymous people doing a rug pull, to Jess's question, who do you go after? Not her clients. It's always not Jess's clients. But the point is, there are some very vexing issues here. But taking this simplistic binary approach, it's all bad and get rid of them all. You almost want to ask the flip side, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist at least one hour and 24, but if you got rid of all DeFi, wouldn't that be really good if the sovereign wanted to you do a, 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 a sovereign digital coin? Wouldn't I, that be really nice if there were no competitors, just the United States digital coin? If we... Don't get to this in the panel. I hope someone in the audience asks about CBDCs. But I want to get to Yesha. Before, but before we do, I think that um, I think that you said something really interesting at the very end. I was on a jury at the end of December. God help us if we have a ten thousand person rug pulled by the Dow. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty pretty straightforward. We deliberated for three days. So there's a there's a big boulder to push uphill. Can you talk a little bit about, yes, if you can, I'm sure you're going to talk about international implications, but also if you can talk about U.S. competitiveness, anything you want to say in response to what Brad just said. Sure. I mean, I just wanted to, to follow up on what Brad was saying, which is from the other side, um, and something that Jess pointed out, which is that, you know, this technology has been embraced by people who have not necessarily been embraced by the traditional financial system. So when you look at the statistics about which Americans are using crypto, and Brad brought up his you know, dearly departed grandmother in Iowa or something, right? Like, actually, Americans, you know, the folks who've embraced crypto are traditionally people of color in America, LGBTQ population. So in a Harris poll, I think it was in 2021, that showed that approximately 21% of black Americans own crypto, 19% uh, of Latinx Americans, 25% of LGBTQ plus Americans own crypto, right? So this has been embraced by those folks that have traditionally been on the outside of the mainstream, have been potentially not been included by the traditional financial system, and so have put, you know, savings into the cryptocurrency market 
it as a place where they haven't felt excluded in the past. And that's important because in certain communities, which have been vulnerable communities, this represents savings that are hard-won savings that have gone into these technologies. Pardon me. And they are continuing to be put into these technologies with the hope of wealth building. Again, a facet of, you know, American economic life that has been, you know, certainly... Um, denied to certain parts of, you know, uh, of, you know, certain populations and demographics. So in, in, in real terms, there's some, you know, there are real people here, there are real communities that have put hopes into this technology. And so what folks need is good disclosure, you know, absolute clarity as to custody. People need to be sure the technology is being used is real. And we can do that. You know, we are a creative regulatory community with expertise and technocratic ideas about how to fashion smart, adaptive regulatory systems. The danger, coming back to the earlier point that Brad was making, is what happens if this gets banned in the U.S.? Well, that's fine, but it will go abroad. So, for example, when one's looking at tornado cash, the use of tornado cash has plummeted um, as soon as, you know, this action was launched. So one can see that, um, that the use of tornado cash has fallen dramatically in the wake of the action. But clearly, there'll be new blenders, there'll be new technologies that will be hosted abroad, hosted and serviced abroad with the reach of the U.S. government is that much weaker. The ability of the U.S. government to control these tech, you know, to be controlling some of the exposures here and to be legislating to control the risks is that much weaker. So there's some real, I mean, I just wanted to bring it back to who's using crypto in the U.S. It's, it, you know, it, it's folks that, that have been excluded traditionally from the financial system, vulnerable communities that need to be protected from the risks, as we have seen post-FTX. We need good rules and disclosure. We need custody. We need technological backstops. But pushing this stuff offshore is not going to be a good answer to and, that. And if I could just something, you make such a good point, which is when I listen to you, what are we afraid of with DeFi? Why is it getting tarnished as an entire industry that's corrupt and wrought with fraud when it's doing things like serving the underbanked and over time will have many more use cases? We're, again, my concern when we talk about regulating this is letting the fringe bad cases just pollute all of the promise of this technology that, by the way, every day we sit here in America not, you know, I, uh, the, the panelist from the earlier panel said his company doesn't do business in the United States, and I have so many clients that are the same way. The technology continues to evolve around the world, and we're just missing out. And all we're afraid of is this boogeyman that is just the always sitting there trying to steal my departed grandmother's dollar. And there's so much more to this industry, this technology. Jess's clients, and I was, of course, being facetious earlier, but this industry is dependent on Jess's clients and open source uh, here it is. You talk about transparency. I don't know what my bank uses for the, my when I stick my ATM in. I don't know what technology that is. Jess's clients put it out there for the world. Uniswap, you know, you can see what the, the open source technology is. So as first principles, I think you make a great point. There have to be certain transparent guarantees if you're going to use this technology in America. And I think we'd all agree on that. But the notion that we've gotten to a point where so many actors are afraid to open up business in America, who shut the door to hiring, to technology. And then the irony is just as clients in America are getting hauled out, and it's Bitcoin, so it's in the safe zone. It's the one you know, child on the playground in the safe zone. But they're still getting hauled over to the UK. 
which again is part of this, um, I don't, I don't want to call it the FTX hangover, but because it was before FTX, but this feeling that there's something seedy about DeFi, and we who are who are in the mix need to start proselytizing. This is completely legitimate technology, but like any other technology, can be misused. Does it need immediate regulation? It just makes a good point. I, you know, again, maybe not. Maybe the current laws that govern financial transactions are, are good enough. Maybe though, if there's a 10,000 person Dow doing rug pulls, we need Congress to act when that happens. I don't know, I don't have all the answers, but what I do know is when I talk and when I'm on these panels and when I'm listening to other panelists, and I, 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 it's always this fear that the regulators think every one of us who are involved in this are involved in some sort of nefarious financial transaction. And I think we need to get beyond that. So I, just a couple comments on that, and then I want to go to Jack before we open it up for questions, because I want to talk about the traditional financial system and how a potential counterpoint to it. But one of the things that is absolutely true is that remittances, right? It's the one thing we know is used today. It's used by the unbanked and the underbanked. It just doesn't resonate in Washington. It just doesn't. Everybody in this town has been pounding the pavements and the halls of Capitol Hill trying to say that, and you have progressives who are the least interested in that argument. I just don't think they see it in their districts in a really concrete way. And I think a lot of the benefits are abstract. So I see your point that it can be fear, because we for sure have headline problems in the industry and some bad actors who have tarnished the industry. And I think it's also that it's so hypothetical and theoretical that it's hard to find those good, real use cases, and we don't amplify them in a way people can feel. And one of the messages I think does work is you don't have to understand it to not want to ship it to Singapore and the UK and send US technology overseas for competitiveness. But one thing, Brad, that you said that I thought was so interesting was about even unintentionally, if you get in the way of the financial services industry in Washington, DC, you've got a tiger by the tail. And I think that has happened here. So I have a thought, and Jack, you can push back on this if it's not right, but one of the things that might be a new and different thing we could do is look at the financial services industry and how they're going to use this technology or potentially make um, algorithmic, AI-based fintech decisions that help their bottom line. Maybe we try to find common ground, because I think that's potentially one path forward that we haven't too much looked at, but I think is perhaps inevitable. Maybe we don't like it ideologically, but could be inevitable for getting um, success in Washington. What do you think? You're for it? You're against it? So I think you make a, you raise a really interesting question, which is what are the benefits and the use cases? I'm actually going to challenge the premise of the question a little bit as someone who focuses on policy. I don't think that the question before regulators is, is this good and should we be for it, or is this bad and should we be against it? I think the way that regulators should be looking at a new class or category of technology is, how do we mitigate the known risks and get out of the way so folks in the marketplace, customers, developers, entrepreneurs, can figure out what those product market fits are? Um, in terms of the, the broader question about the synergies between AI, crypto, DeFi, and even, frankly, TradFi and centralized finance, I think there is a broad open uh, green space for um, a lot of those products, combinations to happen. And I think what's critical about DeFi and open source financial technology um, at a base level is that 
the technology itself enables those types of combinations, recombinations, um, financial Lego blocks that get talked about. On AI specifically, there's sort of a, an interesting phenomenon where there's the older generation of financial AI, and then there's the very cutting-edge emerging generation of financial AI. For decades, the, some of the greatest traders of equities and commodity futures in the world have been robots. Um, that's a pretty known quantity, frankly, in finance. Um, Robo-advisors um, for individuals have been with us for decades. What's new is, and what relates to some of these issues we've been talking about with open source fintech broadly and DeFi is the potential for individuals to harness um, the latest AI developments and large language models and like tools. Um, where, for example, a robo-advisor that we're used to um, has a clear person holding out a shingle. This is Betterment. This is Wealthfront. We are an investment advisor, and we have this fiduciary duty that Jess was talking about at the top of the conversation. When you have a public, multi-purpose chatbot or conversational AI tool, um, including those that could be very capable and are open source and could be stored locally, frankly, um, who is in the dock again? Who, what parties? Uh, throat can we choke, as you put it, Nikki. Um, these remain tough questions in AI, and I think that's part of the reason that the bad precedents that get set in crypto and DeFi can go on to have lasting repercussions for further cutting-edge uh, financial technologies. And one thing I'll just say is that there are clear benefits to being able to use um, models locally, things that regulators and policymakers traditionally are concerned with, such as privacy and confidentiality, um, such as customizability, and frankly, avoiding some of the mono models and hurting behavior and financial stability risks that we've heard about from financial regulators. So it's really important um, that financial regulators do not set bad precedent and do not put their thumbs on the scale for lack of understanding the benefits of this technology. And I don't think the future of it should have to hinge on whether policymakers like it or not. Can I, can I just jump yeah, in real quick? So one of the questions I get from judges a lot, and, and you re I really like what you had to say, is, okay, I get DeFi. You're going to sell me your car. I'm going to buy the car. We're going to use a smart contract and I'm going to move Bitcoin, and when you, it hits your, uh, your wallet, automatically I get a notification, the car's at a garage, and the title and the keys are in that. But what about the DMV? They should get their registration and sales, and aren't we put, you know, uh, how is that better for me than doing it the way it's done? And I get that a lot from judges and lay people. And when you amplify that use case, I mean, what would you say to a policymaker? If the policymaker just asks you, what is DeFi? Why is that better? What's wrong with a traditional model? Isn't there more fraud inherently in the system if it's just you and me without an intermediary dealing with it? What would I, you say? Oh, I want to know what Jack says, but I also want yeah. to know what Jess says, because yeah. she looks like she's got thoughts. <laughs> um, you're welcome to jump in first, Jess. But. Well, what I was going to say, grifters be grifted. I mean, I think you answered the question. I don't know you. I don't trust you. When you do it through a DeFi, a smart contract, there doesn't need to be trust. This is automated. People will continue to scam each other at regular arm's length transactions. That's never going to go away, whether we're talking about traditional finance or fintech 
or Web3 or DeFi or whatever novel space we're in in 50 years. People will continue to do the exact same things they've done from the beginning of time. It is just human nature to scam people. That's the difference. The difference is that sort of scenario that you set up with a smart contract. It doesn't require trust. It allows a transaction to happen automatically without one party, well, I can't say without, but reducing the risk that one party would be scammed. And I think that's a convincing argument for DeFi. So we'll go to Jack and then Yesha, you'll go. And I know we want to leave time for questions too, and then we'll come to you. So I think Jess makes a phenomenal point. Um, and I'll just piggyback on what Brad said a minute ago in terms of the FTX hangover. Uh, FTX failed because the man in the middle um, lied and stole. Um, whether SBF was going to be a trustworthy middleman was in some ways between him and his therapist. Um, with a DeFi smart contract or protocol, that could be open and auditable. And the world doesn't have to trust SBF. It simply needs to uh, look at the open and auditable code. Yes, we'll end with you and then open it up for questions. Great. And, you know, phenomenal points uh, that the panelists have made. And one thing to, to look at is what happens in countries that can't rely on systems, DMVs, um, trustworthy record keeping, um, identification, consumer protection bureaus that can verify your identity. And it's incredible to sort of travel around the world and see countries really embrace technologies where local record keeping, uh, trust in local institutions is low and where consumers do, in fact, have a great deal of digital savvy. Folks are very comfortable using smartphone technology. Younger populations that have grown up digitally and feel you know, extremely comfortable with concepts in decentralized finance really embrace sort of blockchain-based uh, transaction mechanisms that are able to verify um, identity, that are then able to transfer value based on consensus mechanisms um, that, are, that are automated, and that don't, don't then have to rely on potential infrastructure um, that local countries don't feel like, you know, produces confidence within the local population and certainly efficient economic outcomes. In other words, where the services are provided quickly and reliably and in a way that is cheap for people to use. Um, and so it's incredible to, to, to see that internationally where, you know, folks are embracing these kinds of verification systems for real estate, certainly for um, large-scale transactions like cars you mentioned. But, you know, it's becoming a thing. And one can see why. Here, obviously, we have systems, and so we don't feel that urgency. But other countries certainly do. Absolutely. Okay, so we're going to open it up. We have just about just under 15 minutes for questions. Just a reminder to those watching online, you can submit questions via Cato's Facebook, YouTube, their website directly, and also Twitter with the hashtag CatoEcon. And we're also going to have in-person questions. So I think someone's going to hand me an iPad for the um, online ones. Well, is that right? I don't know. We'll find out. Yes, okay. Um, and one thing I want to thank everyone for doing, and Jess came super close, but she did not do it, is not saying trustless. And as a communication strategist, I will tell you, most people think trustless is bad. <laughs> like, you guys, it just doesn't sound good to most people. So while we're getting Q&A together, I'm going to ask if the audience has questions. But it'd be, first, please word it as a question, if you can, um, out of respect for the experts that we have here. And then if you guys can in any way have a call to action when you answer, that'd be just A++. So, do we have any audience questions? I don't know. Yes. You guys, there's an iPad. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, we'll do it. Also, I'm 45. I can't see this, but I will figure it out. Okay, it'll be fine. If I pause, don't panic. 
Do we have any in-person questions? We'll start with this because anybody here came in triple digit heat and is a zillion percent humidity. Who's caffeinated? <laughs> Raise your hand, anybody? Nothing, zilch? Oh, I th thought I saw someone. Hi. Yes. I think she that that individual is scratching. Okay, the face. then we'll go to we'll oh, go. Oh, no, there is a question. Oh, there is a question. I stand uh, yes, corrected. Yes, an in-person question. I stand we want correct. to reward the people coming in a suit in D.C. today. Gosh, I thought we solved all of the world problems up here. And if you can just say your name and your affiliation and speak loudly so the online folks can hear too. Hi, I'm. Yeah, we can hear. I'm Ryan Singer. My. Um, my family office is called Vex Capital, and I'm a technology entrepreneur and technologist. Um, in the wake of the tornado cash prosecutions, should I be more concerned publishing open source software under the names of corporations I'm involved with instead of pseudonymously? Great question. Attorneys? Uh, do you want to take it because it involved tornado cash, or you want me to jump in? Sure, so this is not legal advice, but I think, um, you know, anytime there's an enforcement action in the space, uh, there could potentially be a chilling effect. And I think even folks having to ask that question is, is evidence of that. And I would just say that decentralization to me is more important than anonymity. You know, anonymity sometimes pretends that you might think there's something wrong and you don't want to be found out. Sometimes it could be skewed that way. The idea of this whole topic is decentralization. And in fact, the Uniswap court understood that if software engineers are developing something they're putting out, I mean, this just goes to tech. It has nothing to do with crypto or blockchain. If you put something out open source, you're inviting the world to take your work product and use it, iterate on it, uh, develop it. And that act in and of itself, unless it's like designed only to do Silk Road or, or designed only to take in sanctioned cash and clean it, I mean, which most software is not um, designed for a single purpose like that, um, then I think the idea is to be decentralized, to put it out there. Not, and, and the problems start coming when you're not really decentralized. It's really, it's still mine and I'll control it. That's where you're gonna have more problems than I think putting your name around it. I, I mean, Jess, what do you think? So I think it's an interesting question. It's actually one that has, uh, uh, there is some existing law in the UK about it. There was a case it's, it's still going on, but there was a case where there was a default judgment in the UK against a website. I believe it was, well, forget it. I can't remember what it was, and I don't want to miss, <laughs> I don't want to tell you the wrong thing. But it was hosting the Bitcoin white paper, and the person who ran the website was synonymous. Their name is Cobra. And they were sued by an individual who claims that, you know, he's Satoshi Nakamoto. He Wait, I, I'm Satoshi. <laughs> Couldn't help myself. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay, so you know who it is. And uh, the synonymous owner of the website uh, did was unable to appear and answer the complaint um, without revealing their true identity. So they defaulted in the lawsuit because that was the decision they made. They didn't want to reveal their identity. They wanted to protect their synonymous nature. They defaulted in the lawsuit, lost the lawsuit. As a result, they had to take down the Bitcoin white paper, and you actually cannot host the Bitcoin white paper in the UK as a result of that default judgment. 
And now there's an interesting thing going on in that case regarding the attorney's fees, because in England, there's a loser pays rule. So, you know, the amount that that claimant spent suing this pseudonymous website owner on attorney's fees is now being dealt with. And again, the question has come up is whether this person should be decloaked. So, you know, I encourage you to take a look at that. Um, that's a very long way of saying that publishing software pseudonymously doesn't necessarily protect you from being sued. It's just a question of what the impact of any lawsuit would be against you personally, right? If you were sued pseudonymously. It's really interesting. Um, as a lawyer, I think it's a, something kind of interesting to nerd out on, but it's also a little scary, right? It goes back to the question of would any of you continue to do this when there are all these, you know, potential threats to your, you know, personal stability? Right. The chilling effect of it. So I actually have an online question. We had talked, I had urged someone to ask, um, ask a question about CBDC. Somebody did. And they asked about an open source CBDC and if that would fix some of the civil liberties concerns that we might have with this. Do you have thoughts on it, Yesha? Yeah, sure. Um, so CBDCs are very unlikely to be open source and permissionless. Um, almost all the proposals that have come out um, from the UK, for example, with respect to the digital pound, the Swedish e-krona, um, looking at our own proposals, it's very much based on a permissioned blockchain, and if there is a blockchain at all. Um, and the idea here is obviously very straightforward, which is that the central bank um, is going to be the main repository for the data, is going to be the main, main you know, is going to maintain the ledger, and is responsible for backstopping the ledger, given the enormous implications of what a digital dollar would represent for the U.S. Um, and so, you know, the there have been some calls to make this open source um, and transparent, but even then, um, you know, those have been very strongly resisted. Our banking system is one that really relies, as Brad, you know, mentioned earlier, on maintaining very strict confidentiality of banking data, of bank transaction data. There are good reasons for that. Um, and so obviously um, having an open source, transparent blockchain for CBDC is really a non-starter on almost any jurisdiction or any pilot that is underway around the world. I think that's exactly right. I'm sort of dubious if the U.S. is going to have a CBDC. So in the last couple of minutes, Brad, it might be great to ask you about that. And then I then I'll finish up with the panel and we'll be off to the races. Brett. I believe we will have one and I'm very anti and um, the real trouble will become when the U.S. government says certain transactions can't be conducted in cash for all the normal reasons and then we have the digital coin and my concern is what goes on with civil liberties and privacy when the sovereign controls monetary policy in what you can spend, what you did spend, and uh, why you spent it. I think we're down the road in a bad way to a social credit system that's keyed off of monetary policy. Yeah, I think you and I are kindred spirits. I'm like Liz Lemon, always paying in quarters, making people accept it. <laughs> Drives me nuts when places are cashless. Okay, so finally, we'll end. We'll just start and go right down the row. Call to action. It could be something you've published, something you're working on, something you just urge the industry to do, but let's just go through what you'd most want people to do or read or think about as they leave this um, conference and go about their lives. Yes. Sure. So um, I'm an advocate, so I'm going to advocate for uh, the people that we support and represent. 
I encourage you to visit our website. It's bitcoindefense.org. And I encourage you more broadly than that is once you've had an opportunity to sort of understand what these cases are about and the issues, think about how this could apply to any other situation, whether TradFi, FinTech, what have you. Think about the potential further implications of the law that is being considered, the, the changes to the law that are being considered in the UK. Think about how that could impact your lives here in the United States, and it could. Because if my clients are being dragged in from the United States and they decide they're not going to work on, for example, one of my clients used to work on satellite open source satellite technology, they're not going to work on that, then that's something that may go away or that's something that may cost people a lot of money. That will stifle innovation and it will contract our future. So whether you love Bitcoin or you hate Bitcoin, you need to think about the further implications of this sort of closed-minded, short-sighted, potential constricting of existing fiduciary duty and tort law. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. Uh, you know, embrace the technology, learn about it. It's at the very nascent stage. If this interests you and you want to be part of the dialogue, uh, move beyond FTX, SBF, rug pulls. Start trying to come up with, in your mind at least, imaginary use cases. Uh, follow the industry, support the good use cases. It's right now, a lot of use cases that are proliferated are very complicated. They're going to become less complicated. There are going to be parts of the world that are quicker to adapt this and make it more a part of daily life and financial transactions. Keep an eye on it. Ask yourself, what's good about it? Why would I want to use it? How can it make my life better? And then start figuring out the things in your mind that would prohibit you or dissuade you from using it. And then think about, well, aren't those the same as in traditional finance? Or if they're different, why are they different? But the call to action, I would say, is demystify this, make it your own, it's coming, it will be adapted, and let's move beyond the binary good, bad, and, and really look at the creative promise this brings us to transform the world of finance. Jack, call to action. Two calls of action, uh, call, calls to action, if I may. The first is because uh, CBDCs came up. I urge everyone to take a look at the leading work that my colleagues Nicholas Anthony and Norbert Michel do on this topic. Um, if you're not scared, uh, you will be when reading this work. And if you are scared, you should read this work to be able to have your good talking points. Uh, second call to action. Um, AI alignment is a topic that comes up in a lot of conversations now. In the narrow case, it is simply a question, for example, of whether a model will uh, provide good customer service, have a fiduciary duty, for example, to its client. Uh, in the broad case, and this is really at the leading edge, um, you know, questions of existential risk that folks are very concerned about. The reason I bring this up is because there are developers who think that, um, you know, Frontier models being open source carries a lot of risk. I think those are important arguments to take a look at. There also are developers who think that open source is one of the key ways to have the most minds working on these hard problems and disseminate the learning that we get out of that work. Um, all I'm saying with this is that these are real questions and this is a real debate and I want regulators to hear both sides before acting here. It seems reasonable that they should. Thank you. Awesome. Um, 
So thank you guys for, for sticking around. This has been a really awesome conversation. Um, and so, so my call to action here is really that, you know, DeFi is here, the cat's out the bag, doesn't feel like it's going to go away anytime soon. If anything, the projection is it's going to grow. Um, so in that case, we really do need some kind of regulatory framework, um, not just for having, um, you know, a regulatory framework, but to provide clarity for developers, to provide clarity for those who are sort of working behind the scenes for their labor, as well as obviously for those using the technologies who are vulnerable and taking risks. So we need that. My call to action here is for private industry to start taking responsibility here as well and to think about the ways in which private industry could mobilize to create some kind of rules of the road, some kind of self-regulation. So what I have written about in my own sort of academic writings is in relation to crypto exchanges. So the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ and others, they act as kind of quasi-regulators of their markets. We need to start designating the crypto exchanges to think about doing that as well. And this is not to let them have a blank check, but to actually regulate them, to bring them into the open, to have regulators take a look and to get them then to start thinking about how they should be part of that responsible regulatory conversation. Um, and that could hopefully also have an impact in DeFi with the coins that are listed to make sure the technology is working and so forth, and to start creating that movement, that dynamic towards having a real informed and sophisticated conversation between regulators and the industry in a mature and sophisticated way. We stuck the landing. We are dead on time. So we'll end <laughs> with that. I want to Thank the Cato Institute again for having us. I want to thank our in-person audience especially for coming over here on a dreadful weather day and to our online audience for joining in. And I want to thank our panelists, especially anyone who traveled for this, which I know is several of you, um, for taking the time to talk about this. And I think we did keep it interesting. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Nikki. Thank you. Thank you. Definitely did keep it interesting. Thank you. I always appreciate a lively panel. It's the last one of the day. Um, continuing the thank yous, I would like to extend a hearty thank you to everyone in our audience today, both in person, online, as well as all of our panelists. I think we heard some very substantive conversations that will hopefully allow us to continue the conversation about what crypto regulation looks like in a world where we need to move forward to ensure U.S. competitiveness. Um, if you missed any part of today's event, um, if you want to watch part of today's event again, if you want to share it with a friend, all of this event will be posted online. Um, it should be available on YouTube as well as on the event website. Um, please feel free to share or visit again. Um, as a quick recap, this morning we started off with a fireside chat with Senator Bill Haggerty where he talked about his concerns with the U.S. competitiveness in the face of an uncertain regulatory regime for crypto. We then had a panel on stablecoin regulation, followed by a panel on regulatory uncertainty in U.S. competitiveness. Commissioner Carolyn Pham of the CFTC provided remarks, including proposing that the CFTC pursue a pilot program for digital assets. And finally, since you're all here, you know we just ended with a panel on regulating open source technology. And we hope that you'll continue this conversation. We here at Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives have been very engaged in this space. If you were here in person, you probably saw the papers that we've written on the table out in front talking about our policy positions and suggestions for how to regulate um, in the crypto and um, financial technology space. 
Um, if you've been online, you might have seen some of that information provided during the break slides. Please look us up. Um, just to give a thanks to the folks on the CMFA team, the scholars there, Norbert Michelle, who you heard from at the beginning of the morning, Nick Anthony, Jack Soloway, who you just heard from, Jay Kadia, George Selgin, and myself. Um, we love to engage on these topics and hope that we can continue to talk with all of you and everyone who's participated today. Um, also like to give a quick thank you to the Cato staff that helped put on and made today's event possible, and not, not limited to, but including the event staff and the production staff, as well as the other folks in Cato CMFA who helped out today, especially Anne Rulon and Imani Harris. So thank you very much.